All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is Michael. This is part two of Age Later by Dr. Nir Barzilay. In this episode, I will be discussing cholesterol, growth hormone, and also our mitochondria. So we're going to begin the discussion with cholesterol. Now, cholesterol is extremely important for thousands of biological functions in our body and is also involved in the production of hormones like vitamin D and also the hormones that come from our adrenal gland, which are aldosterone, testosterone, and also cortisol. But despite being a vital organic molecule, cholesterol over the years has managed to earn a questionable reputation as a harmful substance. Anytime we talk about cholesterol, we need to ask ourselves, which cholesterol are we talking about? Are we talking about the LDL cholesterol? Which, when we have high LDL, we have a greater risk of heart disease because it can combine with fats, calcium, and other substances to form plaques in our arteries. Of course, this is called the atherosclerosis, which can uh, constrict flow of oxygen to our heart and other organs and cause things like stroke and heart attacks. Or are we talking about the HDL cholesterol, which seems to have some protective effects from heart disease? And in general, women tend to have higher levels of HDL than men, which is one of the reasons that women tend to live longer than men. So anytime we talk about cholesterol, ask yourselves, are we talking about LDL or HDL cholesterol? Now, when Dr. Nir Barzilay began finding centenarians for his longevity gene project, one of the stuff he'd look at is the lipid panel in these people. Now remember, uh, his superagers are these centenarians who have a high functioning capacity even in their late years. And he would do a lot of labs on these people like glucose check, kidney function. And again, one of the things he was looking for was his lipid panel. And on average, a men's HDL cholesterol is around 45 and a woman is around 55. But the centenarians in his study and some of their centenarians' offsprings sometimes had HDL levels over 100. Now, the centenarians themselves had HDL levels in the 50s, which is considered high, but when you take into account that HDL decreases about 5 to 10 points for every 8 years, starting around middle age, their HDL would have been expected to be around 20. So again, they're averaging around 50s, where someone their age should be around in their 20s. So something is going on here. Now again, in the case of the centenarians and their offsprings, they didn't only have more HDL, but they had much larger HDL and LDL particles than average. So this is another thing to take into account when you're thinking about cholesterol, is the particle size. Now in general, larger HDL and LDL particles are associated with decreased risk of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and also metabolic syndrome. And the reason is these larger LDL HDL particles are less prone to being oxidized when compared to smaller HDL and LDL particles. Now, the idea is that smaller particles undergo oxidation more easily. And when these particles become oxidized, they are more ready for initiating the first steps of atherosclerosis. So again, larger particles of HDL, larger particles of LDL are associated with decreased risk of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and metabolic syndrome. And this is what we're seeing in the centenarians and their offspring in his study. So we are still talking about cholesterol, cholesterol, but we're also talking about gene mutations. 
And are there really good gene mutations? And the answer is yes. So in many of his centenarians, they had one or two genetic variants that affected the clustering of the cholesterol particles. Now, namely, we are talking about two different genes, one of them called CETP, or cholesterol ester transfer protein, and another one called APOC3. Now, about 18% of, of centenarians in his study had a specific variant of this CETP gene, and it's associated with high HDL and with longevity. Now, about 20% of his centenarians had a mutation in the APOC3 gene, and what, this is one of the carriers of HDL cholesterol in the gene's promoter region, which is the switch that turns the genes on and off. And this ends up in resulting in higher good cholesterol and lower triglycerides. So we're seeing these gene mutations in these centenarians that are actually beneficial to them by increasing the HDL. So again, these mutations are in the CETP gene and also the APOC3 gene. Both of these help increase the high HDL or good cholesterol and also decrease triglycerides. So we're going to discuss CETP first and then go on to APO3 after that, APOC3 gene after that. So the cholesterol ester transfer protein plays an essential role in regulating cholesterol. And the function of the variants causing a decrease in CETP action is not really fully understood. On one hand, it's sort of like a shuttle bus, which transfers cholesterol esters from the coronary vessels of the heart and out of the body through the bile and intestines. Now, this mutation, ironically, actually inhibits the carrier from disposing of the cholesterol. So the question is, why would you want to develop a drug that stops the shuttle of bad cholesterol? But on the other hand, because the load of cholesterol is not getting off its transporters, the particles become bigger and bigger and this may be the pivotal effect. Now remember I was just discussing particle size and how larger particles don't undergo oxidation as easily? This is the theory of what's going on. He puts that maybe the fact that the particles become larger and packed together prevent damage to the vessels. So while a decrease in CETP can have both benefits and drawbacks, the good appears to outweigh the bad. So that's something interesting to think about uh, because this this cholesterol can't be uh, carried out, the particles become bigger and bigger, and it's actually preventing uh, damage to our blood vessels. And he looked at this, this mutation to see what other age-related diseases it might affect, and they found that it is also associated uh, with protection from hypertension. So those with CETP gene mutations have less chance of developing hypertension and other downstream effects like uh, cardiovascular disease. Now, his data also showed that centenarians with a CETP mutation had experienced a small fraction of the cognitive decline of centenarians who did not have the mutation. So it's actually having this protective effect of Alzheimer's. Now, a few people in, in his study, they had a, a mutation called APOE4. We all know APOE4 is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's. And the textbooks suggest that the carriers of these genes with the APOE4 would develop dementia at the age of around 70 and usually be dead by, by 80. But our subjects did not have who, who did not have dementia were still alive at 100. And again, both of these subjects had CETP mutations. Again, this mutation in CETP is protecting them from Alzheimer's. 
even the ones who did have the APOE4 gene mutation. Now, companies try to de develop drugs based on good mutations that are in the centenarians. So they tried it with the CETP variant. And another example of companies taking advantage of gene mutations is with the PCSK9 drugs. Now, you're all familiar with statins, but there's this new line of drugs coming out recently, I'd say within the past 5-10 years, called PCSK9 inhibitors. Now, let me try to explain. PCSK9 is the enzyme that breaks down LDL receptors in our, in our, in our body. In other words, if we have a gene mutation in PCSK9, we are increasing the amount of LDL receptors in our body, therefore allowing more cholesterol to be taken up from uh, these, these organs or from our blood back to our organs. Now, again, PCSK9, these, these drugs are called uh, Evolocumab and Alarocumab, and they inhibit the breakdown of PCSK9. So when we decrease the amount of uh, PCSK9 or in inhibit, we increase the amount of LDL receptors. And of course, this eventually lowers our LDL cholesterol, which is very beneficial to us. So I don't know if I explained that the best way, but essentially what companies are trying to do are target gene mutations that will increase our LDL receptor. So this is sort of being a second line treatment to uh, cardiovascular disease. Of course, we're still using statins, but these new PCSK9 inhibitors are coming out because they're showing a lot of efficacy and decreasing the risk of sudden death. So that is the cholesterol and CETP uh, argument. Now we are moving over to the APOC3 gene, the second gene I talked about. This gene is found on triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and that and they are finding that these centenarians had lower triglycerides and higher HDL cholesterol. So there have been a lot of validation of the protective nature of mutations in the APOC3. And I won't go into de too, too much detail because I talked about the CETP mutation uh, quite extensively. But just know and remember that CETP and APOC3 are two genes that are involved in cholesterol regulation. And there have been shown a lot of benefits uh, and involved in longevity when looking at these superagers in Dr. Nir Barzilay's study. So that's going to finish the discussion of cholesterol, and we're sort of moving over to growth hormone next. So growth hormone, there's a lot of hype uh, in the longevity and aging space as this molecule that will extend our life. But Dr. Nir Barzilay is kind of proving this otherwise. So to back up a little bit, growth hormone is this hormone that is released from our pituitary gland. And what happens when growth hormone gets released is that it will bind to receptors in multiple sites in our body. And one of the sites it binds is our liver. And when growth hormone binds to our liver, it increases or it helps with the production of insulin growth factor or insulin-like growth factor IGF-1. Now, insulin-like growth factor has both beneficial and detrimental effects uh, to us humans. On one hand, high levels of IGF-1 are actually associated with an increased risk of many types of cancers. But on the other hand, 
high IGF-1 levels have also been associated with improved cognition, glucose tolerance, and muscle and cardiovascular function. So again, growth hormone is being released from a pituitary, binding to receptors on the liver, and increasing the expression of IGF-1. Now, Dr. Nir Barzile decided to take a closer look at the effects of a pathway that include hundreds of biological proteins that are involved in the regulation of growth called the growth hormone IGF-1 axis. And the hypothesis was that functional genetic variants in growth hormones and the IGF-1 axis contribute to longevity of centenarians. So that was his hypothesis. And we're, we're going to be looking at the IGF-1 receptor. Now, when IGF-1 gets released, it needs to bind to a receptor itself, just like growth hormone. So we're looking at IGF-1 receptors specifically. Now, there is a French biologist by the name of Martin Holzenberger. And he, he did a lot of experiments on the receptor for IGF-1. And he found that when all the IGF-1 receptors from the chromosomes that carry the gene from the eggs of the pregnant mice, when all those were deleted, they ended up developing pups that were stillborn. Now, he tried something else. He tried just deleting half of the receptors. And when he deleted only half of the IGF-1 receptors, the mice were born. And although those mice were 20% smaller than the others, they actually lived significantly longer than mice that had all the IGF-1 receptors. So it's kind of showing us that, okay, IGF-1 is vital for life because when you delete all, all receptors, the mice are going to die. But if we delete half the receptors, even though they're going to turn out smaller, these mice, they lived significantly longer. So we learned that examples of mutations in the IGF-1 receptor and longevity exist uh, through, throughout nature. Now, if you listen to my earlier podcast, I did a book uh, last year called um, The Longevity Diet by Dr. Walter Longo. And in that book, I also discussed growth, insulin growth factor and growth hormone. And I told a story about how Dr. Walter Longo went to, I think it was Ecuador. Yeah, he went to Ecuador and he got to hang out with these uh, Laren dwarfs who are a little less than four feet tall, but many of them actually live to be 90 and older. And if it turns out that these Laren dwarfs had mutations that make the growth hormone receptor inactive. So he mentions the story of Walter Longo and also this man named Hassi. And the research demonstrated that Laren dwarfs who had the mutation in the growth hormone receptor and in turn lower levels of IGF-1 had almost no diabetes or cancer, two of the leading age-related diseases. So I thought that was very interesting that this whole, this whole area in Ecuador that has these dwarves, because they're missing the IGF-1 receptor or have a mutation in it, are actually living a lot longer and they're not dying from cancer and they're not dying from diabetes. Uh, so that's something to think about. Now, moving forward with the IGF-1 discussion, there was a, another researcher, her name was uh, Sophia Millman. She is the Einstein's Director of hum Human Longevity Studies. And she wondered if people who had lower IGF-1 levels lived longer than those who had higher levels. And she found that twice as many of our centenarians, women 
with lowest median IGF-1 levels lived three years longer than those with the highest median IGF-1 levels. Now, this result was not the same for men, but it did show IGF-1 and longevity inversely correlated. Now, the last question that we wanted to answer regarding IGF-1 was how it affected muscles. After testing the centenarian's muscle mass, grip strength, and walking speed, she found no difference between the results and those of people who had high IGF-1 levels. Unlike women, men's muscle function seemed to be slightly better when they had higher IGF-1 levels. Now, moving a little bit more forward, there was another researcher who wanted to evaluate the antibody's blocking effects on health span. So as with aging itself, females and males both demonstrated characteristic declines in endurance, strength, and motor coordination. However, the females that were treated with the antibody ran 50% longer on the treadmill than those that were not treated had a twofold increase in grip strength and also improved motor coordination. So again, that was with the IGF-1 antibodies. Now, to kind of finish off the, the discussion of growth hormone, Dr. Nier Barzile puts that regardless of the hype, I can tell you with certainty that growth hormone does not grow your lifespan. And even the benefits of taking growth hormones are often not what they appear to be. And in 1990, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 12 elderly men were treated with low doses of growth hormone for six months. And while it was found that they lost fat tissue, gained lean body tissue and muscle mass, and experienced improved lumbar spine density, the researchers also observed a rise in fasting glucose level and also a mean systolic and also an increase in mean systolic blood pressure. So this kind of led them to suggest that long-term use of growth hormone could result in such things like hypertension, diabetes, and edema. So Dr. Nir Barzali does not believe the hype in growth hormone, and he puts to finish off that, but aside from the benefit, benefits growth hormone can provide to children with deficiencies, it's low levels of growth hormone that appear to be closely linked to greater lifespan and health span. So that sort of finishes off the point of growth hormone. Uh, maybe the hype is not what it's all turned out to be, um, but it's still interesting to discuss how growth hormone affects longevity. So we're going to be moving on to the last section, which is unraveling the longevity mystery deep inside our cells. And we are talking about our mitochondria. So to back up about a billion years, Cells have been on Earth for more than a billion years. And back then, our old cells, like our very ancestral cells, had very low energy capacity and low function compared to the powerful cells that we have today. And these cells were also prone to uh, rust and, uh, through oxidation. But one day, there was a life-changing meeting that occurred, as Dr. Nir Barzile puts it. These low-energy, rust-prone cells encountered a type of bacteria. And these bacteria, as it turned out, were very good at producing energy. And not only that, the bacteria also figured out how to defend against oxygen damage by utilizing it for energy production. And of course, this is the idea of the symbiosis or the symbiotic theory. Sometime a billion years ago, our cells engulfed a bacteria which had mitochondria. And we know nowadays that 
the main function of a mitochondria is the production of ATP and energy. But as it turns out, they, the mitochondria are so much more than that. It's so much more than just uh, an organelle that's involved in oxidative phosphorylation and production of ATP. So one of the functions of mitochondria is production of mitochondrial peptides, but this wasn't really dis discovered until very recently. So a researcher by the name of Hassie Cohen, he was studying, ironically, uh, IGF-1 uh, binding protein. And every time he was kind of researching this protein, IGF uh, binding protein, he was running to a, in, he was running into a problem. This binding protein, there was always a protein stuck to it that was not matched in the coding in our chromosomes. And what he noticed was that when he sequenced this protein that was bound to IGF-1 binding protein, it looked very similar to the sequence in our mitochondria. Now, at that time, scientists knew that mitochondria codes for only 13 large proteins, but we now know that proteins that are sometimes bound to other proteins were regarded as garbage because they didn't really fit into sequences that scientists were familiar, uh, were familiar with. So after more investigation, this researcher, Hassi, he realized that the mitochondrial genetic code for this peptide is translated by a message from the mitochondria and that the protein is assembled in the ribosomes of our cells. In other words, as it turns out, mitochondria might be manufacturing hundreds of peptides. And this indeed is true. It's producing hundreds of peptides that are very beneficial for us. The first peptide to be discovered from the mitochondria is called humanin. Humanin was shown to have protective effects uh, in our neurons when incubated with beta amyloid, which is one of the main pathologies in Alzheimer's disease. So a group of Japanese scientists, they injected beta amyloid into neurons, and then they injected humanin as well. And humanin showed to have protective effect uh, from the damage of this beta amyloid. And more research came out showing that humanin also had pro-apoptotic activity of TNF-alpha cancer cells. In other words, it got rid of cancer cells. And human overexpression was found to be sufficient to increase lifespan in worms. And finally, biweekly injection of humanin uh, delayed cognitive decline in mice. So we're showing these huge beneficial effects with humanin. And Dr. Nir Barzilay decided to do an experiment at Einstein to try to find out a role that humanin might have when it comes to physiology and aging. And this is the question. Since humanin is measured in high levels in blood, could it also be communicating with distant organs? So the experiment was set up, and he was wondering if the mitochondria would some way communicate directly with the hypothalamus, which is the control energy, uh, control center of energy metabolism. Now, the result was that hypothalamus completely took charge of metabolism. The humanin ordered the hypothalamus to improve insulin action outside of the brain. And in his experiment, it accelerated the ability of insulin to shut down the production of glucose from the liver. Humanin had caused the brain to act as if we had delivered insulin near the liver to signal that the mitochondria were producing sufficient energy and that the body did not need more glucose. So this was this crazy hypothesis that he proved correct. 
Through mitochondria-derived peptides like humanin, the mitochondria were able to communicate with the brain, and this is partly why the hypothalamus controls metabolism. Now that is very wordy, and you might have to go back and listen to that, but to summarize it, humanin is having effect on our hypothalamus, which is controlling our energy metabolism. And when he provided a single treatment of humanin to a model of diabetes in the Zucker rats, remember those Zucker rats are those diabetic mice who are who develop diabetes uh, 100% of the time, in, f- in few hours, they showed that blood glucose dropped to nearly normal levels, suggesting that humanin may have a role in energy and glucose metabolism and may be an anti-diabetic um, and, and it's actually anti-diabetic as well because it decreases the amount of glucose production in our liver. Now, he, to continue the discussion of peptides, mitochondrial derived peptides may have a central role in modulation of aging as well. While humanin levels decline with our aging, our centenarians and their families had elevated levels. So again, he's looking at humanin in his supercentenarian study. And he's showing that those people who, ha- who lived to be past 100 had elevated levels of humanin. So m- moving forward with the discussion of uh, mitochondria-derived peptides, uh, I'm going to skip a little bit forward. And a while back, Dr. Nir Barzile, he founded a company called Cobar. And he started this company to look and research more mitochondrial-derived peptides besides humanin. And his group with uh, Cobar, they found a small human-like, humanin-like peptides, so HLH or SHLPs. And each of these pre- peptides seem to be protected against at least, at least one age-related disease. Now, what was the problem with Cobar was that... Um, Hassi and Kobar were identifying all these peptides that showed real promise. But around the same time, the Supreme Court weighed in on a decision and it, they stated that naturally occurring molecules like genes and peptides could not be patented because they already exist in nature. So although, although that seemed like a problem, Kobar was able to develop analogs of these peptides and it also gave them an opportunity to turn these peptides into drugs that are more effective and longer lasting than natural peptides in our body. Now, thanks to all the financial support, Cobar has been able to identify several hundred peptides and that they're slowly developing into new analogs. Uh, In addition to the SHLPs, which I just just described, like for example, there's another one that came out called MOTS, um, MOTSC which is a promising therapy for obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, and uh, non-alcoholic steohepatitis. So that's the end of the discussion there. Um, To summarize again, cholesterol, it's extremely vital in our bodies. Growth hormone, um, the debate's not really up in the air. It's sort of overhyped. And mitochondria are more than just energy producers. They produce mitochondrial-derived peptides, which are extremely beneficial in our bodies and can help us live longer, healthier lives. So I'm going to end part two here, 
And I hope you learned something about cholesterol, growth hormone, and mitochondria-derived peptides. And tune in for part three of Age Later by Dr. Nir Barsley. Thank you for listening.